0: 12th of January, and you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Tim Urbeck, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 40th episode, the first one of 2021. Happy New Year, listeners, and what a start we have had already. Hopefully, though, with most of the drama related to Brexit and US elections behind us, we can look forward to less political noise and more substantive policy and statecraft as we progress through 2021, which has got to be better than 2020. Today, we will talk about something at the core of Asia, trade. Despite the overriding narrative of the past few years being deglobalization and trade wars, countries around the world have not followed the U.S. in turning inwards, thankfully. While protectionist tendencies are certainly on the rise, so are attempts to keep trade initiatives alive. Take, for instance, RCEP. After nearly a decade of deliberation and setbacks, 15 Asian nations finally came together on November 15th of last year to sign the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. RCEP includes all 10 members of ASEAN, along with Australia, China, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea, and it marks the second major multilateral trade deal in recent years. Remember, after Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership in 2017, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is known as CPTPP, or TPP minus the U.S., was agreed upon in 2018. Seven of the 15 RCEP members belong to the CPTPP, incidentally. We then end of 2020 with a major investment initiative getting formalized. On December 30, the EU and China concluded, in principle, the negotiations for a comprehensive agreement on investment, which is known as CAI. The RCEP and CAI are major initiatives with major implications. To discuss these matters, we have with us today Dr. Deborah Elms, founder and executive director of the Asian Trade Center. Dr. Elms is the vice chair of the Asia Business Trade Association and also sits on the International Technical Advisory Committee of the Global Trade Professionals, Professionals Alliance. She's also the chair of the Working Group on Trade Policy and Law and a senior fellow in the Singapore Ministry of Trade and Industries Trade Academy. Previously, Dr. Elms was head of the Temasek Foundation Center for Trade and Negotiations, TFCTN, and she publishes the Talking Trade blog, which I highly recommend. Dr. Elms, welcome to Time. Thank you. Uh, Let's start with RCEP. I have given a little rundown of that in my intro, but I think we need an expert rundown of RCEP's genesis and scope.
1: Well, the genesis came about because there were five existing agreements that linked ASEAN together with what it calls its dialogue partners. China, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and India. So there were five separate agreements, and they were really complicated for firms to use because each one of the five was slightly different. So if you looked out at the universe of trade agreements, it was sort of overlapping what we often call noodles in the noodle bowl. So the idea was, well, couldn't we just bundle them all together, put five of them out on the table, take the bits in common, bundle them together, and then we would have RCEP super easy, super fast, we're going to be done in less than two years. Fantastic. So when they started this back in late 2012, early 2013, they thought this would be very short, very fast and very easy. Uh, and it turned out to be eight long, challenging years in order to get an agreement, in part because the original five deals were different, but also because the the dialogue partners themselves were not connected. So we don't ha- we did not have an agreement between uh, Japan and Korea, between Japan and China, and we didn't have agreements between India at all. And so that really impeded progress on this, what was 16 and is now 15 party uh, mega regional trade deal.
0: Tell us a little bit about how India being one of the founding collaborators of this project fell out of it.
1: Well, the Indians were nervous to begin with because they d- they don't have the same level of experience and familiarity and comfort with negotiating trade agreements as some of the, the others here in Asia who are doing a lot of trade agreements. So that was the first challenge. And then the second challenge is they were worried about competitiveness in general. Uh, and as time went on, that competitiveness concern kept rising rather than diminishing. And by the time we reached the, the substantial conclusion phase at the end of 2019, the Indian government had decided that that they were unwilling to tackle uh, the potential for very high inbound uh, goods manufacturers, especially out of China, into India. And so they said, no, that's it. We've, we've gotten this far all the way to the substantial conclusion, but we will not proceed the signature. So I think it's really about competitiveness challenges inside of India. It's about India's uncertain relationship in general with sort of trade, they're not particularly well integrated with supply chains or value chains. So the consequences they thought would be relatively modest of staying out. And they're convinced that the Indian domestic market is so large, attractive, and lucrative that firms will come to India whether they have a trade agreement or not.
0: Well, I suppose that's a decent calculated risk on their part. Uh, But I'm surprised that uh, since within the RCEP, you have countries with varying degrees of development, and some of them are even less prosperous than India and probably have even higher tariff barriers. I have like, you know, Myanmar and Laos and Cambodia in mind, that somehow India could not find a place in this agreement, which is not that binding and it's not that immediate. Uh, I would have thought that would have been enough. And it seems to me countries like Singapore tried very hard to keep India on board.
1: They did. They tried extremely hard. The Japanese in particular really wanted the Indians in I think everyone did, both because there is uh, market access and benefits to be gained from having India in, but also because it would have been a way to help discipline Indian policymakers around a a consistent set of rules. So it's not that the rules would have governed everything in India, of course not, it's not that comprehensive, but it would have begun to pull India into similar alignment with the rest of Asia. And it would have been easier for firms, especially to operate in Asia and India, you know, in and out more seamlessly, and I think that was very desirable. But at the end of the day, in India, there was really no constituency or almost Mm -hmm. no constituency inside of India who said, we want RCEP. Instead, what you heard over and over again across eight years of negotiations or seven years for the the Indians was, we think RCEP's an awesome idea. We think it's fantastic. Absolutely do RCEP, but not for my sector. So you open up everything else, but you keep my sector closed. And when you hear that from every single sector, then the net result is nobody wants to have their sector touched. And it's easier to walk away than to make what could have been some painful discussions, uh, concessions in order to allow India to participate in RCEP.
0: Right. Looks like, you know, countries are still hoping that one day India will come back, but we'll, we'll have to wait for a long time, I think, for that. The very valuable window has been missed. You mentioned that Japan was very keen to have India participate in ARCEP. Would you say despite that not working out, Japan is perhaps the biggest beneficiary of this uh, agreement?
1: I think if you just look at the numbers, where do you get the biggest benefits? Usually where you did not have an, a linkage in place before and now you do. So in that sense, Japan is gonna do very well out of RCEP because it picked up both new access to Korea and new access to China, in addition to the RCEP benefits on top of that. So I think if you're, if you're Japanese firms or you're located in Japan, trying to get into the rest of Asia, there are tremendous opportunities. Uh, and so I would say, yeah, Japan did quite well out of this. Um, they knew that they were going to do quite well out of this. They pushed extremely hard on the entire process to make sure that it kept moving forward and that we got to a conclusion.
0: And at the other end of the of the spectrum, a country like Singapore, which has embraced free trade for decades and has free trade agreements with many, many countries in the world, does it really make much of a material difference?
1: I think it should. Uh, it should, even though Singapore, you're right, has, more than 20 FTAs already in place. This one is different because it's the world's largest, uh, because it connects together most of the markets that are important for Singapore based companies uh, and because it removes impediments for trading in Asia uh, for Singapore or anywhere else. We've had a, a lot of trade clearly in and out of Singapore. But most of the trade in, a, in Singapore and in Asia more broadly has been destined, final products at least, for the US or for the Europeans, sometimes for Japan, a little bit for China. But most what, of what happens in Asia is raw materials and intermediate goods, you know, partly finished goods. And then the final products get sent out. But what we don't have a lot in Asia is finished products being sold and services being sold in Asia, for Asia, partly because up until RCEP comes into force, it can be very challenging to move things in and around Asia. It's costly. It's difficult. It's expensive. Its distribution is not fantastic, etc. And so, I think RCEP makes it possible to to have a sort of in Asia for Asia strategy that even a Singapore, which is well connected, has the ability to benefit from.
0: Great, um, Dr. Elms. Earlier, you said um, in terms of the scope of the agreement that it is not very comprehensive. Um, now. I think we can safely say that it is not as deep an agreement as an EU common markets agreement, but uh, give us a sense of how comprehensive it is, is it, and what are the things that in the future, because I, I remember during the announcement, it was pointed out that it is a living document, that it can evolve and expand. So where do you see it going, going forward? And also where do you see as it stands now?
1: So it's more comprehensive than most people think. It's certainly not the European Union. That's never been the aspiration of Asia. But what it does have is 510 pages of legal rules and more than 14,000 pages of, of individual country schedules and commitments. So this is a comprehensive agreement. It covers goods, services, investment, intellectual property rights, a little bit on standards, it's legally binding. It, uh, it, you know, it's a very comprehensive deal, and certainly more comprehensive than many of the existing and the original ASEAN Plus One agreements, which were less comprehensive. Uh, so it's it's an improvement over our existing situation in Asia. So I think that it is comprehensive. It's not the e- EU; never aimed to be, but for Asia, it's it's an impressive achievement, actually. And the other thing that makes it impressive. Um, is part of what you alluded to, which is you should view RCEP as the baseline. And then from this baseline, it should improve over time. It's modeled on ASEAN's own way of negotiating, which I think is very helpful, which is to say, let's start, let's get in place whatever we can get in place to make us more consistent between all of the members. And then over time, we will upgrade, we will expand, we will deepen, we will broaden, we will add additional commitments. And I think the same thing will happen in RCEP. So RCEP on its own, quite comprehensive, um, doesn't go as far, of course, as some, particularly the European Union commitments, which are much more intrusive. But it provides some necessary consistency, and it reduces a number of important barriers to trade. And it will be improved over time as it gets upgraded, as it gets expanded, as new topics get added.
0: immediately? So what, what is on the calendar in for 2021? Are we going to see most of the countries, if not all of them, ratify it? And what are the immediate business implications are we going to see?
1: I think that's a great question. I would anticipate that by this time next year, RCEP will be live and in force. Now, in order for it to come into force, we need six out of 10 members of ASEAN and three out of what are five three out of the five what are called dialogue partners to agree. I think six out of 10 ASEAN members is, it's not simple, but I think that's manageable. I think the dialogue partners are a bit more challenging. And it's not because, let me be clear, that I think the dialogue partners, China, Japan, Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, don't want RCEP, aren't enthusiastic about it. It's just that some of those dialogue partners have very long and time-consuming processes that you have to go through to ratify a trade deal. So Australia, I think, is the the outlier on this one. In order to get an agreement through Australia, you have to have independent studies, impact assessments. It's got to be going through separate parliamentary committees. It's got to be read multiple times in parliament. And so that process, even if you think it's the most wonderful thing you've ever done in life, it just takes time. So I think that the challenge is, is to get those six ASEANs and three dialogue partners to be ready in order for the agreement to come into force. Um, for ASEAN, it's much simpler because most of the ASEAN countries do not have complicated procedures in place to ratify an agreement, but they may have to make, depending on the, on the country, they may have to make domestic level regulatory changes or legal changes, and that can just be time consuming. So as an example, if you wanna drop tariffs on things, sometimes in some governments, you have to declare that to Parliament and have Parliament approve it. In some cases, you can just do it by administrative actions. So I think it, you know, it varies across the 15.
0: And in terms of uh, business implications, so financial sector uh, firms or just you know, expert-oriented companies, will they be able to benefit from RCEP in the near-term horizon?
1: I think firms need to start now getting ready for RCEP because it is a complicated agreement and understanding where the benefits are, what what are new opportunities that firms didn't have, where are potential competitive challenges that may not have been present in the past, uh, and then what are strategies that will help firms leverage RCEP, I think is going to take some time. So I would say companies should be preparing now for this agreement because You know, 12 months is not actually that long in order for firms to execute totally new strategies and be ready to hit the ground running on day one. So I think those firms that do that, that are successfully paying attention, doing the internal work to say, what do we get? What's different? How can we leverage this? Will will benefit more than those firms that are oblivious to what's happening under RCEP.
0: Now, we have a fairly intricate supply chain in Asia already. You know, a bunch of ASEAN countries make inputs. uh, Korea, Taiwan, Japan make input. These things end up in China, Vietnam, wherever, and then they get put together. How will that supply chain get enhanced even further by RSAC?
1: I think there's at least two ways in which it makes a difference. So the first is that, as I mentioned, you'll start making final goods in Asia for Asia. So that is a new... Uh, reason to have even deeper integration because you're making goods now in Asia for Asia, but you're also still exporting. So your those supply chain linkages will deepen because you've added a whole nother very important market sector to your overall export profile. So you're not just sending it to the Americans or to the Europeans, but also across your across Asia. So I think that's the first way in which um, value chains will will be enhanced by this. And then the second way is that It's easier now to move the raw materials and the intermediates, which have always moved or have recently moved uh, here in the region, but they've had some impediments depending on what it is you're trying to move. There can be tariffs in place. There can be customs challenges. There's difficulties moving services for sure. Investment is often challenging. And so those are also going to be moved away, many of them. Uh, And so it makes it easier to do what you currently do in RCEP, Um, and I think Even if you never planned to sell something in RCEP for RCEP, you have the ability to move more of what you produce more easily, seamlessly, and, and with less cost once RCEP comes into force.
0: I'd like you to comment on the services angle a bit more, if you will. I think um, if Google Thailand wants to get engineers from Google Malaysia today, even that is complicated because, you know, Thailand and Malaysia don't have very good agreements on service sector labor movement. Um, Is RCEP going to make a decisive change in that movement of services?
1: Well, I think you've got three things there that you're mentioning. So the first one is the services commitments. And we don't talk enough, in my view, about the importance of services commitments in a trade agreement. We usually focus on trade and goods because it's it's more tangible. It's easy to see. It's easy to measure. But the services benefits in our set, I think, are substantial because we're now reducing barriers to trade in all kinds of services, from engineering and architecture services to financial services to education and health. There's a whole range of things that are going to be changed in services. Um, The second part of what you said was about movement of people. So there is a commitment in RCEP about movement of people, but it is extremely limited because the 15 economies were very uncomfortable about opening up their markets to one another. And so Although there are some commitments in there, it's largely about what you just described, which we we would call intercorporate transferees. You were at Google Thailand, you moved to Google Malaysia. It may be that you could qualify for an intercorporate transferee for a temporary purpose. It's not permanently moving. It's to take up, let's say you're going to help the Malaysian team roll out a new product launch for the next six months. That might be easier under RCEP but all other kinds of labor movement or or worker movement is is really quite restricted in RCEP. In other words, you could still move if the the immigration laws allow that, but not because of RCEP. And then the third thing that you mentioned was Google. Um, You know, Google as a uh, digital company uh, got some benefits as all companies did, but some of the digital benefits or the e-commerce benefits that we might have seen in RCEP did not um, did not come through as much as they could have, or sh- perhaps I think should have. In other words, one of the challenges that a company like a Google has, or in fact, you know, companies that produce podcasts is often moving the data, the information back and forth across borders in the region that could have been addressed in RCEP and it was only weekly addressed in RCEP. And where you host that data, do you have to put it in a server like a Google server that's located in Thailand in order to service the Thai market is still unclear because RCEP did not have the sort of obvious clear commitment to say, you should be able to host data wherever in RCEP you think is most appropriate for your company. And so I think there's a lot of things in RCEP, but it doesn't solve all of our problems. It doesn't solve all of our service challenges, licensing, qualification. It doesn't solve all of our, our issues around labor mobility. And it doesn't solve a lot of our digital data issues.
0: It seems to me that most countries in the world are still struggling to come to terms with how to deal with data privacy and localization, uh, let alone being able to have a common playing field or a common set of references in a multilateral setting. Um, so yeah, I, I look forward to seeing more multilateral initiatives in these issues because I think many countries, I'm not think, singling out any country, but many countries I think probably could do with some uh, assistance in this regard. Um, Dr. Elms, what about investment? Uh, We have a lot of cross-border investment taking place in ASEAN from North Asia already. Uh, How does that get facilitated under RCEP?
1: I think it's it's a great question. The investment provisions, I think, are very helpful and I would put them into two categories. So the first is the one most people focus on, which is market access. What can you do once RCEP comes into force that you couldn't do before? And the answer there is, I think, quite impressive. There were, un- you, you could invest pre-RCEP, of course, but you weren't always positive about what the rules would be. And sometimes you were restricted from investing at all in certain sectors or in certain areas. You had to invest with, as an example, local partners, local JV partners with certain equity requirements. You could only invest if you hired X number of nationals. You could only, there were a whole lot of sort of requirements around that much of that is going to be limited under RCEP. So I think that's helpful. So the market access part is an important part of investment. The second part that matters a lot on investment is the rules around investment. So what are governments allowed to require and what are they not allowed to require? And that's been clarified quite a bit in RCEP. I think that's very helpful. There's a third part that usually matters to investors that is not in RCEP, which is once you've invested in the country, is there some way for you to be protected against seizure or expropriation of your investment by the government without fair compensation? Normally, that's covered by something called the investor state dispute settlement, ISDS mechanism. But increasingly, ISDS is under assault by a number of people who argue that it gives investors too much power over governments. I'm not, I'm unconvinced of this argument, but nonetheless, it mattered in RCEP. And so that investment protection mechanism is not yet there, but what they did instead is they made a commitment that they will start talking about an investment protection mechanism within two years and complete the negotiations within five. So basically five years from the start of RCEP, there will be some way to protect your investments or feel more comfortable about the protection of your
0: investments. Okay, um, I want to go back to trading goods for a second. I recall reading about fairly liberal rules of origin stipulation within RCEP for uh, intermediate goods to qualify for tariff-free uh, uh, you know, movement. Uh, does that open up uh, sort of a back door for China to avoid, say, U.S. tariffs by setting up subsidiaries around Vietnam, Cambodia, elsewhere, and send things as, out as made in Vietnam when a large chunk is made in China?
1: It it shouldn't. So in part, because any trade deal should apply only to the members. So you can't use RCEP to trade with the Europeans or trade with the Americans because they're not members of RCEP. So you can only use RCEP and the benefits, especially tariff reductions in RCEP for RCEP. So you can't ship to India because they're not a member right now. You can't ship to the U.S., uh, Europe and elsewhere. However... Um, it may still be easier to provide, particularly those intermediate goods. Uh, So let's imagine, for the sake of argument, we're talking about, uh, you know, mobile phone. The mobile phone inputs may be easier to produce um, in RCEP, but the final phone, if it gets assembled, will have to go to the U.S. or to Europe without any RCEP benefits on the phone itself because the phone was not created in RCEP for a a member country. So we have um, the ability to create things in the region, certainly. Uh, Can you use that RCEP benefit in order to ship it elsewhere? No, you should not. And in fact, if you wanna ship to the US, US Customs does a pretty good job of investigating to ensure that anything that is tagged or labeled that comes into the US does not take advantage of benefits to which they, they are unqualified.
0: Very interesting. Okay, that's uh, fascinating to know. I suppose there are a lot of customs agents and commerce, Department of Commerce agents out there uh, investigating these things. Um, okay, so a little bit about the geopolitical implications, because I remember right after RCEP was announced, some people said it's a big coup for uh, China China will drive the agenda. And then I heard pushback on that saying, no, this is an ASEAN-led initiative and China is a rule taker, not a rule maker within this umbrella. Uh, Where do you stand on this?
1: Clearly, the agreement was driven by ASEAN and it matches ASEAN's existing commitments. Uh, I always joke, but I think it's true that if, if China had been in charge of RCEP, we would have been done a lot faster. But it was ASEAN who was in charge. So you have 10 members trying to coordinate internally across 10 members to decide what their strategy is before they engage with the extra dialogue partners. And so that, you know, that's tedious and time consuming. Uh, So it's clearly been ASEAN in the driver's seat. What I also think is true is that when it comes into force, just by the virtue of market size, that the momentum will shift up north because you have the world's first and third or second and third largest economies involved in RCEP in Japan and China, they will have disproportionate influence over the agreement as a whole, simply because of their size and their market domination. You know, I, I don't think anyone should be delusional about this. It's not like Lao PDR is somehow gonna dictate what happens in RCEP uh, you know, over the objections of very large market economies. So I, I think it's been ASEAN led as it comes into force and as it grows, it may have more influence in Northeast Asia, just because of the, again, the market size. As it expands, and I think this is a key part with RCEP as well. This was not designed, as I mentioned from the outset, it was not designed to sort of dominate Asia for Asia. That was not the original impetus. The original idea was just, let's make it less complicated. And then all will be better. So there was no sort of grand aspirations in 2012, I don't think, really, when they started this. But now that it's 2021, I think the circumstances have changed. And so RCEP, which was never designed to be a platform for discussing trade and economics more broadly, is now surprisingly well positioned, in my view, to have those kinds of deeper geostrategic or geopolitical or geoeconomic discussions about what are the rules of trade? How should we think about standards for new evolving technologies or sectors or industries? Uh, And I could imagine, I can't say this will happen for sure, but I could imagine that RCEP starts to set many of the rules of trade for the future.
0: Does uh, RCEP put uh, Taiwan in a bite?
1: It's challenging for Taiwan. I mean, any time that and Taiwan is is in a bind, both because of RCEP and because of the alternative large agreement in the region, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership (CPTPP), which also does not have Taiwan in it, it is very hard to be part of supply chains when most of your competitor firms and most of your final, uh, you know, supply suppliers and final markets are part of these larger trade agreements because you do not get the benefits that all of your competitors do. So for Taiwan, this gets more and more complicated to stay out.
0: Yeah, and that, of course, you know, perfect segue to CPTPP. Um, we had some momentum of TPP under the Obama years, but it was fading toward the end. And of course, it just completely went away after uh, President Trump took over. Um I understand that, you know, incoming president like Biden has a huge number of things to worry about, and the trade agreement with Asian countries is definitely not on the top of his agenda. But four years is a long time. Do you see the U.S. coming back into the fold?
1: Well, let me just say that we have CPTPP in force. In fact, we're about to have, we just had on January 1st, year four of tariff cuts uh, for the seven active members of CPTPP. So most of the goods in our in CPTPP are already tariff-free uh, and all of the services investment and all of the other benefits of CPTPP have already been enforced for years. So we have CPTPP. The question for this year for 2021 is who's going to join because they are going to reopen the agreement for accessions as early as April. Uh, and at the moment, For certain, the the UK wants to be part of CPTPP and seems to have a fast track for discussions about entry. But there are a number of countries that are now waiting in the wings to join, uh, especially after RCEP closed. So you saw renewed interest from Thailand, which has been on again, off again with with CPTPP and also from South Korea uh, in the last few weeks. And so I think we will have multiple members coming forward to say we would like to be part of this agreement. The one, There are two countries, of course, that most people are focused on. One of them is China, where President Xi in November at the APEC summit said that they would seriously consider joining CPTPP. Now, that, of course, presents all sorts of opportunities and challenges for the agreement if the Chinese were to get in. But the other one, which I'm going to skip over for just a second, but the other one is the Americans. And the question is, will Joe Biden and his new team be interested in coming back to the agreement? And for... In general, I would say no, not in the near term, because the agenda, as you just noted, is loaded for the the Biden administration, but also because we have a, a technical challenge in the United States, which is the authority that Congress gives to the White House to negotiate trade deals expires on July 1st of this year. And in order for the U.S. to be in CPTPP, it should probably, unless we do some really fancy legal maneuvering, have that authority in place first. That is a very short time frame from now until July 1st to get TPP started. Uh, and so I think, in my view, it's it's longer uh, away than that. Now the good news, of course, is that the the we we all missed this in last week's riot discussion, but the Senate is now barely, but still in, in democratic hands, which gives Biden more opportunities to push through some things than previously. And it's possible to imagine that trade could come earlier on the agenda than anyone imagined. But I still think it's very hard to 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 figure out how to get there before July 1st.
0: Okay, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Um, Dr. Elms, we touched upon digital commerce and services very briefly earlier, but it's a Issue that you know you delve a lot of time in, and in your Talking Trade blog, you recently wrote a piece on digital trade and commerce. Uh, would you care to give us a sense of, you know, what are the critical issues that are likely to be subject to regulatory and market developments in the coming years?
1: Sure. Yeah, we just we just released a piece uh, here in Singapore with the Hendrick Foundation, looking at the eight issues that will matter on the trade uh, digital trade front for 2021. Uh, Some of them include things like digital services. So we have very poor rules in place right now, I would argue, for handling the digital delivery of various kinds of services, education, healthcare, uh, in particular, but it could be anything. It could be professional services, construction services, whatever. We have lots of rules that require you to be on the ground, licensed and qualified in order for you to provide services. And the digital economy sort of upends that. So how do we get services to move by digital means, and in particular, how do we help smaller firms who are often in digital services delivery participate in a growing, fast-growing part of the global economy? So digital services, for sure. Uh, another one that will matter is on payments. So once you buy and sell things online, which, of course, everyone should be trying to do now in 2021 under COVID, you have to get paid. And getting paid for your goods and services cross-border in Asia tends to be more difficult, more cumbersome, and certainly more expensive than it ought to be. So how do we handle some, some payment challenges um, in a region that is very diverse with you know citizens that don't have bank accounts and have to think about creative ways to use uh, financial technology products and so forth? So I think payments is, is another one. A third one that I'll just mention um, is on taxation. So increasingly, governments, especially coming out of COVID, where they have spent a lot of money trying to stave off disaster, are going to be looking for revenue. And one place to find revenue is on inbound digital services, especially, but also e-commerce goods. But I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the services for a second. So we will likely see more efforts to tax digital services delivery, and that can becomes quickly complicated for firms because you may have to register to pay taxes in lots of different jurisdictions, and handling that is going to be very complicated for companies. The compliance costs could be very high, uh, and so we should be watching carefully, I think, digital services tax policies for 2021 and beyond. So that's just three areas off the, off the top of my head that matter for the region and digital.
0: Are there developments that are happening in European Union or the U.S. that could have ripple effects on digital trade and commerce in Asia?
1: Well, certainly the digital tax issue has been brewing for quite some time. And, and this is, I'm not talking in this case about the taxing of corporations. So where does a company pay its taxes? I'm talking about the, the services taxes attached to this, the, whatever it is that they're providing. Uh, And I think that is still an open question. We were hoping that the OECD would help provide clarity on this and they've been unable to solve it either at the OECD. So I think that's an issue. Another one that matters a lot for the digital economy and that Asia will have to think about is competition policy. So we increasingly see complaints, especially out of Europe, about competition challenges uh, arising from the dominance of certain digital platforms. And the likelihood of using some kind of competition policy, antitrust, anti-monopoly levers in order to address competition challenges is likely to be an issue here in Asia. And depending on how some of these other jurisdictions, like the Europeans, manage this, there could easily be implications here in Asia. So we've seen that in the past. Uh, Many of your listeners may be very familiar with GDPR which is uh, European privacy rules that suddenly ended up catching many Asian companies off guard because they weren't aware that they might have to comply even if they don't themselves provide uh, movement in and out of Europe. And so the same kind of thing could happen under competition policy where suddenly the number of providers that you have available to do everything from your cloud hosting to Uh, payments providers and so forth that might drop dramatically if this competition law challenges takes off in a place like Europe. So it will have implications potentially here in Asia.
0: Dr. Elms, on the issue of cross-border payments, I think the country that I see that has the greatest degree of urgency in using its own sovereign capabilities to push the boundaries of cross-border settlement through digital means is China. I mean, we see this whole eRMB initiative taking place. I read about how Huawei's uh, phones now have eRMB wallets in them. So sitting in somewhere in Africa, a trader could trade with Chinese uh, counterparties and and settle things on RMB. Do you have a view on how likely the Chinese are to to succeed in in this uh, pursuit?
1: I think the reason why we flagged payments as a challenge is that, again, particularly for companies trying to operate in COVID time, you need to be able to have payments happen in real time uh, as seamlessly as possible and at a minimal cost. That is more complicated than you might expect. So the example that I give that resonates in this region is if you use Grab here in Singapore to pay for a Grab car, you're fine. But if you try to use your grab wallet in Thailand in order to pay for a grab car, then you can't, it doesn't work. You know, so this, even on one platform, the inability to use those mobile wallets or digital uh, devices to pay is an issue. Who will win out in this argument about payments, I think is still a bit of an open question. It's very possible that Chinese firms will continue to do well in the payment space because they have solved many of the the obstacles that prevent consumers from using it and that prevent firms from being excited about using these digital uh, payment solutions. So when you're solving a market challenge, you often do well. Um, And so we'll have to see how strongly that those payment solutions um, are able to dominate the market. But I would also note that there has been pushback on this, including out of the U.S. On payments specifically. So again, we might find that options in Asia are dictated by developments outside of the region and in particular the US and its banning of certain kinds of Chinese payments apps.
0: Right, I saw that about uh, WeChat and Alipay uh, facing restrictions uh, but these things these days seem to be all subject to reviews and last second changes changes in mind. So we'll, we'll see how restrictive US is to Chinese FinTech in the Biden administration. Dr. the thing that I am fascinated by these days is not necessarily what's happening at the private sector fintech side. That's been a dynamic area for a while. Uh, I think that among the sovereigns, nobody seems to be as keen as the Chinese government that if you want to use RMB outside of China, so far it's not really been possible, despite all the talk of SDR inclusion and, and uh, internationalization of the RMB. But it seems to me that the eRMB mechanism that the Chinese are sort of stepping into could allow traders sitting outside of china to transact in rmb completely bypass the swift system and therefore avoid the watchful eye of uh, us authorities uh, and and sort of you know keenly following where where they go with this uh, down the road um, dr elms the a big surprise for me toward the end of the year was this uh, comprehensive agreement on investment between EU and China. I had no idea that it was you know, coming to fruition. Um, can you give us a flavor of what this entails and uh, why all of a sudden this happened or it was just a long time coming? Just coincidental that it happened in the winning days of December?
1: Well, this is another one of those longstanding negotiations. I think they, the, the Europeans and the Chinese have been at this for seven years, trying to create some kind of investment commitment that would make it easier. I think this is the crucial part easier for European companies to invest in China with more security around what were the acceptable behaviors by the Chinese government vis a vis those investments, which is typically why you want an investment treaty, because you want both market access and you want protection of those assets. And so that it's taken a very long time for the EU and China to decide on this agreement. And you're right, it came for many people out of the blue at the end of the year, but I think partly because we all kind of quit paying attention, this has been going on for so long uh, that you don't always remember those ongoing negotiations that don't appear to be getting anywhere. And then suddenly at the last second move quickly. I would put this agreement into that category uh, the other thing I would say, my, my at least my guess, my guess is that the Europeans decided that they were not going to have a better offer than they had at the end of 2020, that anything that came after the end of 2020 was just going to be less than what was already on the table. And so their decision was, let's just take it now, and at least we will have the benefit of an agreement, which can serve against our baseline, can be built on in the future, and crucially for Europe, helps them become more on par with the American access to China. Uh, And and I think that competitiveness challenges are important for the European Union. Uh, And I think that's why they seized whatever was on the table, wrapped it up and said, okay, we're done.
0: I wanna conclude by asking you a rather broad arc of history type question. Uh, Since the global financial crisis uh, 12 years ago, we have seen a gradual increase in protectionism around the world, at least the way UNCTAD measures our trade restrictiveness. Um, But you and I just spent about 40 minutes talking about several very large comprehensive agreements. Um, So were we like too quick to, you know, read the obituary of globalization? Is there still hope for countries that pursue free markets and free trade to, to grow and prosper?
1: I think we will still have globalization, but those tensions that you've identified remain very present in the economy. And in particular, the tension for government is I need, as coming out of COVID in particular, I need to ensure that I have jobs and opportunities for my citizens. The easiest way for me to do that, many governments will argue, is for me to close my market to you and you keep your market open. So now I can trade in your market and my market, but you can't come and compete with my companies. That incentive, though, is an incentive that we all face. And since all of us face the similar kinds of challenges, the net result of that could be everyone closes their market, which is what we saw in the 30s in particular. Um, And so there has been the threat of increasing um, competition for protectionism. For you know, every time we have a crisis, particularly from the financial crisis onwards, and COVID accelerated that. So far, governments have remained relatively open, and I think it's paying off for them. But that tension should not be dismissed because it is a it's a it's a live factor for many governments, which is how do I ensure coming out of COVID in an economic downturn that my citizens have gainful employment. And one way that is seems always very easy for politicians to grab is to say, "I'm just going to close my market. I'm going to raise barriers. I'm going to keep your things out, uh, and that will protect jobs in my market." And so that that risk of protectionism, I don't think is gone anywhere.
0: Right. I think you know the days when we went to grad school, it seemed like the canon of thinking was you know there's always gains from trade, uh, but I suppose it was sort of devoid of the political economy considerations that you just brought forward. Uh, Dr. Deborah Elms, that was just a great chat. I really, really appreciate your thoughts and insights.
1: Sure. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks to our listeners, too. Kobe Time was produced by Martin Tucky, Daisy Sharma, and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 40 episodes of Copy Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. We thank you for your time and listenership. Have a great day.